Our Father, we do come to you as our rock and our redeemer, the greatest treasure of our longing souls. And Lord, we pray that through this time that we have together in your word this morning, you would cause us to worship the Lord Jesus with everything that we are. We pray that you would deepen our understanding of who he is and what he has accomplished and what you have appointed him to be. And we pray, Lord, that you would grip us with the truth that he is the only way. And Lord, cause us to be overcome by his humility, by his love, and cause us to be those who want to know more of him, those who want to go deeper into who he is and what he has done and what you've appointed him to be. Lord, we ask that through this you would make us like him, that you would make us people who are mainly concerned about you and others. So Lord, we commit ourselves to you. We pray that you would cause us to so read and study and mark and inwardly digest the word that we might never depart from its truths. We commit all these requests to you in Christ's name. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Hebrews chapter 5. We will be looking at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10 this morning. And as you turn there, I want to suggest what I think is the big question that the author of Hebrews uh, is, is providing us an answer to in this section of his letter. That big question, I'm going to put it like this, how are we ever going to get back into the Garden of Eden? If that's the question, we know what keeps us out. We know what makes it so that we cannot enter into the very presence of God. It's our own sin. It's God's own standards. It's the way that our, our inclinations and our dispositions and our weaknesses all forbid us entry. And what the author of Hebrews has been doing for us in this letter is showing us how the, the old covenant was a sort of provisional setup for the fulfillment of the way that God would bring about the new covenant whereby people are brought back into his presence in the Garden of Eden. And, and the author is arguing, the author of Hebrews is arguing that the old covenant is fulfilled by the new covenant. And one big reason he's making this argument is because he's addressing people in his day who, if they were to revert to Judaism, these are many of these people are probably Jewish people who have converted to Christianity. And because of that, they are now subject to persecution. And if they were to revert to Judaism and leave Christianity, they would avoid that persecution. And so what he's doing here is he's showing us how understanding the old covenant enables us to understand the new covenant. And so what he's done to this point in, in the letter is he's, he's said to us in Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, that God has spoken in his son. And, and this is in contrast with the way that through angels, to the prophets, he revealed the Old Covenant. Now, with the coming of the New Covenant, Hebrews 1, 1-4, God has spoken in his Son. And then in Hebrews 1, 5-14, 
he impresses upon us the importance of God speaking through the Son by showing us that the Son is greater than the angels. And because of the Son's greatness, because he's greater than the angels and he's the one through whom God has spoken in 2, 1 through 4, he urges his audience to pay much closer attention to what they're hearing because, as he says in 2, 5 through 9, it's not to angels that the world to come has been subjected, but to the Son. And then that leads him to 2, uh, 10 through 18, where he teaches that the Lord Jesus became like his brothers, he became man, in order to become their high priest. And this brings him into this argument that Jesus is the high priest who is bringing his people home. How are we going to get back into the Garden of Eden? Only by means of the high priest who brings us home. And so if we were to summarize Hebrews 1.1 through 2.18, I think we could say we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. And then in, th- in chapters 3 and 4, at the beginning of, of chapter 3, he urges his audience to consider Jesus, the high priest of our confession, and hold fast with boldness. And then starting in, in 3.6 and moving through uh, 3.14, he explains how the wilderness generation failed to enter into the land of promise. And this, this, he's working with, with this, this uh, framework of thought whereby the exodus from Egypt is going to be fulfilled in the cross of Jesus. And then the, the movement through the wilderness is going to be moved through our, it's going to be fulfilled through our pilgrimage, through our Christian lives. And then the entrance into the land of promise by the people of Israel is going to be fulfilled when we, the people of God, enter into the new heavens and new earth. So there are these parallels that he's working with that, that explain how the old covenant is typifying what God has fulfilled in the new covenant. And the wilderness generation did not enter into God's rest. And so then in 3.15 through 4.7, he explains how we who have believed enter that rest. We who have believed, it's, it's as though... Uh, the author is, is paraphrasing John, John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you. And, and it's as though we who have believed enter into the Garden of Eden now, even as we anticipate the fulfillment of that experience one day in the future. And then in 4, 8 through 13, he speaks of Joshua and the conquest generation. And, and even though they took the land, they didn't experience its fulfillment And so then in 4, 14 through 16, he calls his audience to to recognize who Jesus is. Look at 4, 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So there's hold fast and draw near there. And again, the drawing near is a call. The call to draw near is a call to enter into the very presence of God, as though you were entering the Garden of Eden by means of the Lord Jesus. So to, 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 to set us up to see Hebrews 5, 1 through 10, and what's going on here, we, we need to recognize the way that when Adam sinned, he alienated himself and all of his descendants from God. And then what God did was he began to institute these, these priests who could stand between God and man and bring about reconciliation 
between God and man. So God is instituting salvation and appointing priests to seek reconciliation. And on the basis of that, I would say this. God loves you. God loves you and he wants you back. You have been alienated from God. And this long history in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, of the way that God is instituting these priests to bring his people back to himself. It's a long story of God loving his people and bringing them back to himself. And now the author of Hebrews, again, is helping us to understand the Old, the Old Covenant, that we might understand the New. The author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 5, 1 through 10, is teaching us how to read the Old Testament. How do we get back into the Garden of Eden? The high priest takes us home. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. The author writes here, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And I would just point out here that the word chosen is a passive, right? Every high priest, somebody's doing the choosing. And the subject, the person doing the choosing, is unstated. And then look at that next statement. Appointed to act. Somebody's doing the appointing. Chosen and appointed, those are both passives. And if we were to, if we were to translate them into active statements, we would say something like this. God chooses from among men. And God appoints high priests. And if we do that, we see the way that God is initiating reconciliation by setting up this priesthood under the old covenant. So every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. The whole point of the priesthood is to bring people back to God. He's talking about here the old covenant priesthood. And then what they do starts at the end of verse 1 and really continues uh, through verse 3, what the old covenant priests do. So at the end of verse 1 it says, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And, and if, we, if we were to take the time, we could go back and read in the book of Leviticus and in the book of Numbers about the kinds of sins for which sacrifices are available. There are, there's one class, classification of sins for which sins are uh, sacrifices are available. There's another classification of sins for which no sacrifices are available. You know what I'm talking about, the high-handed sins. Somebody who commits a sin with a high hand, no sacrifice can be made for that. This other classification for sin, is, it's referred to as unintentional sin. And I don't know if this has caused you some difficulty in reading Leviticus and Numbers, but it, it used to cause me difficulty because I would read about these unintentional sins and then I would think to myself, well, every sin I've ever committed was intentional at some level, right? I knew it was wrong and I went and did it anyway. That's what a sin is. So what is this business about high-handed versus unintentional? Well, I think the, 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 the key distinction between them is a high-handed sin is one that says, I don't need your sacrifices, I don't need your atonement, I don't need your covenant, and I'm having nothing to do with you. That's a high-handed sin. An unintentional sin, the author is actually about to describe here in verse 2. I think in Hebrews 5.2, the author of Hebrews is providing us with a definition of what it looks like to commit an unintentional sin. He speaks of how the priest, in verse 2, can deal gently 
with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. So I want to suggest to you that unintentional sins are those that are committed in ignorance. Not, not total ignorance as to whether this is right or wrong, but the kind of ignorance that, that makes you think, oh, I might really get away with this this time. Or this might really bring me fulfillment this time. Or it, it might really work for me to pursue this sin. That's ignorance. That's ignorance. But it's not, it's not, I'm done with your righteousness and definition of righteousness, and I'm done with your covenant. It's, it's ignorance. And then waywardness. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. I think what's being spoken of here is the way that without even meaning to, we want the wrong thing. We wake up in the morning, and before our brains are even really turned on, we're already desiring sinful things. We, we are wayward because of the pervasiveness of our sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. There are other sins that we commit, and, and we're trying to resist, and we want to do the right thing, and we're just not strong enough. We're not strong enough to stand against our own desires. We're not strong enough to overcome our own pride. We're not strong enough to... to to oppose the, the pervasive wickedness of the world, we're, we're beset with weakness. So I think all of that, ignorance, waywardness, weakness, all of that puts things in this category of unintentional sin. Again, not unintentional in the sense that you didn't mean to commit a sin, but unintentional in the sense that you didn't intend to throw off the covenant. You didn't intend to walk away from God. That kind of unintentional sin. For those kinds of sins, these priests can offer gifts and sacrifices. The author's going to have a lot more to say about these sacrifices as he continues through the letter. And in fact, uh, in, in Hebrews 10, the passage that, that Denny just read, uh, I think we have sort of the balancing section of the letter that tells us about how the sacrifice of Christ brought an end to all these old covenant sacrifices, which could really never take away sins. So let me, let me offer you a, a couple of ways to respond to what we've read so far Hebrew, here in Hebrews 5, 1 through 3. From Hebrews 5, 1, every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Let me, let me encourage you to respond with gratitude to God for his efforts at reconciliation. Consider this vast plan of God and all the lengths to which he has gone to set up the high priesthood of Christ and the great reconciliation that Christ is going to accomplish and then sit back and think to yourself, the Lord did all this to accomplish salvation so that I could be brought back into his presence. So thank God for reconciliation. We should be actively cultivating grateful hearts. That's the first thing I would say. And then in response to the end of verse 1 and, the, and, and mainly verse 2 there, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. I want to encourage you to be merciful to sinners. Cultivate a disposition of dealing gently with those who are ignorant 
and wayward because you're a sinner too. You too are beset with weakness. And then verse 3 continues in this, in this vein. Because of this, because of the high priest's own weakness and waywardness and ignorance, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice first for his own sins. Uh, sorry, he, he is, able to, uh, he is ab- obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. So the, the sinful high priest must first make an offering for himself and then for the people. If we were to go back and read Leviticus chapter 16, we would see the regulations for the priests doing these very things. When on the Day of Atonement, when they go into the, the, the holy place, they first offer sacrifice for the, their own sins that they might be cleansed, and then they offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. The author tells us one more thing about these earthly priests before he transitions to talk about Jesus. So verse 4, And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. In other words, no Israelite just decided, I think I'll become a priest. And, and no, no Israelite priest just decided, I think I'll be the high priest. No, it was God. It was God who decided who would be the priest. Now, all of this in Hebrews 5, 1 through 4, is setting the author up to talk about the Lord Jesus. And it's, it's as though he's, he's walked up the steps on one side and he's going to walk down them and they're going to correspond to what he's just said on the other side. But, but, he's gonna, but there's another step to take at the top, so to speak. And that's in verses 5 and 6. And, and this is remarkable. What the, what the author of Hebrews does for us here in Hebrews 5, 5 and 6, it's like he says, we're going to pause... And and I want to teach you how to read the whole of the Old Testament. And then I want to teach you how to read the book of Psalms in particular. Okay, so first, uh, the whole of the Old Testament. Look at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, I suspect that most of us, when we, when we hear Psalm 2-7 quoted, we think in kingship terms. We think in terms of the king from the line of David. And earlier in the, in the service, Tim read the whole chapter, and, and it certainly sounds like uh, what's in view there in Psalm 2 is 2 Samuel 7, and all the promises made to David there about the future king from his line. And, and I think the author of Hebrews knows this about us, and he's trying to help us see the the whole Old Testament connection between sonship and priesthood. It's it's almost as though he's saying, if you're thinking only of kingship, you're thinking too narrowly. You need to broaden out your thinking. And and if we we say, okay, how do I do that? From what he says throughout the letter, it becomes clear, I think, that this author is thinking of Adam as though Adam was not only a king— He's not called a king, but he's given dominion, and he's told to have that dominion over the whole of creation. He's a king, but he's also a priest. The language used to describe Adam in the garden is priestly language when it's, when it's said that he's put in the garden to work and keep it. So the reason I'm talking about Adam 
is because Adam is the first son of God in the Old Testament. And then you move forward from there, and, and before too long in the book of Genesis, you run into this guy named Melchizedek, and, and I really think that one of the reasons Moses decided to include Melchizedek in his narrative was because he embodied in his person both roles. He was both a king and a priest. And, and it's like Moses, as he's telling the story, he sees this guy and he says, he represents exactly what I need to be talking about, so I've got to have Melchizedek in the narrative. And then you keep going from there, and eventually you get to Exodus 19, and when, when the Lord has brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, you remember what he says to the whole nation, you are to be to me a royal priesthood. In other words, a, a kingdom or, you know, royal priests, both roles. And then you get to David. And, and what's interesting about 2 Samuel 7 is that the anointed king is going to be the son of God. And the reason I mention the anointing of the king is because in the Pentateuch, the only people who were to be anointed were the priests. And that means that when the, when the prophet Samuel was told, go and anoint one of the sons of Jesse king, anyone reading that narrative is going gonna, is gonna to be thinking, well, the king is now associated with the priesthood because it's priests that are anointed. If you, if you know the Pentateuch, you know only, the only people in the Pentateuch to be anointed are priests. So to anoint somebody else is to associate them with the priests. And so the anointing of King David associates him with the priesthood. And, and the Lord said uh, to David there in 2 Samuel 7 of the future king from his line, he will be a son to me, which is kind of a way of saying he'll be like a new Adam. He'll be a representative of the, of the nation of Israel because the nation of Israel, Exodus 4, 22 and 23, Israel is my son. Let my son go, Moses says to Pharaoh. So the author is teaching us how to think about sonship. And he doesn't want us to think about sonship only in terms of royal sonship, but also in terms of priestly sonship. And, and if you will read the Old Testament this way, things will open up for you. You'll start seeing this all over the place. And, and all of a sudden, the, the, the interpretive perspective of the author of Hebrews will start informing your reading of the, of the Old Testament, and it will make much more sense to you. So he's teaching us how to read the Old Testament, and he's also teaching us how to read this, the book of Psalms. Look at what he says right after this in, in verse 6. Having quoted Psalm 2-7, now he's going to quote Psalm 110, verse 4. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever, uh, after the order of Melchizedek. Now, among the many things that we could say about this, we can say this one very important thing. The author of Hebrews believes that the guy being spoken to in Psalm 2 is the same guy being spoken to in Psalm 110. I'm going to say that again. The guy being addressed in Psalm 2, you are my son today, I have begotten you is the same guy being addressed in Psalm 110. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. It's so obvious that we, we, we move right past it, but we should read the Psalms this way. The, the main character of the Psalter is this guy, the future king from David's line, whom we know as the Lord Jesus. And the author of Hebrews is saying, this is how you should read the Psalter. You should read the Psalter as though David is always talking about the future king from his line. And it's not like this psalm over here is talking about 
you know, this one future savior. And this other psalm over here is talking about some other future savior that has to do with some other story. No, it's the same savior and it's the same story, which is to say you should read the Psalter as a book, as a united book that, that, that is presented to us in sequence on purpose to teach us about this guy. Now, the function of these statements in context, look at verse 4 again. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God. You see what the author's doing. It's like the author is saying, the Lord Jesus was called by God with the very words of Scripture. God announced to the Lord Jesus that he was being appointed as high priest of Israel in Psalm 2-7 and Psalm 110 verse 4. That's where the appointment of Christ takes place. Verse 4, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him. And then he quotes those two statements from the Psalms. So the, the author is saying the Old Testament priesthood and the way people become priests in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New Covenant priesthood and the way Christ was appointed as the great high priest. Application, two points of application from this. Number one, I mean, this is, feels so basic, I almost don't even need to say it. But I think I do need to say it. Worship Jesus. Worship Jesus. He's the great high priest. He is the son of God, the royal son, the priestly son. He's the fulfillment of David's line. He is everything that we need. Worship Jesus. And then uh, secondly, and this is what I've, I've mainly talked about here, allow the author of Hebrews to teach you how to read the Bible. Allow the author of Hebrews to teach you how to read the whole Old Testament and, in particular, how to read the book of Psalms. Read the Psalter as a book in sequence. Read the Old Testament informed by the meaning of sonship and kingship as taught by the author of Hebrews. Next, in verse 7, uh, the author is going to balance what he said about the ministry of the the, earth, the, the earthly high priests of the Old Covenant, at the end of verse 1 through verse 3, all that is now going to be balanced by what he says now about the earthly ministry of Jesus here in verses 7 and 8. So verse 7, in the days of his flesh, let me just make a comment about the word days there. I don't think the author has one particular day in mind, like the night he was betrayed. You know, you could read this passage and, and our minds immediately go to the Garden of Gethsemane because there Jesus is, is sweating great drops of blood and he's crying out to God. So it's natural to think of that. But I think the author has a broader ministry of the Lord Jesus in mind because he says in the days of his flesh, not limiting it, it to one event, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. And I just want to note the parallel between Jesus offering up prayers and supplications in verse 7 and at the end of verse 1, uh, the, the, the high priests offering gifts and sacrifices for sins. Jesus is offering up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears 
to him who was able to save him from death. So many things come to mind, don't they? Uh, I think of, of uh, them coming to Jesus with the news that Lazarus is dead. And the text tells us that, that short verse, Jesus wept. And then, and then when, he, when he prays on that occasion, he, he, he says uh, to the Father that he is saying these things for the benefit of those hearing him. And then the Father answers from heaven, and some think it's, it's thunder. And, and we could think of many other in, instances from the Gospels that are really encapsulated here. When, when the text says, uh, with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death, I think probably the author of Hebrews has in view the way that so often through the Psalter, David is praying that God would deliver his life from the power of his enemy. And, and I think that probably the author of Hebrews is thinking in terms of the Lord Jesus praying those psalms. Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. It, you will not let your Holy One see decay and so forth. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And then look at this remarkable statement at, at the end of verse 7. And he was heard... Because of his reverence. He was heard because of his reverence. This indicates that there was never a barrier between the father and the son that resulted from irreverence on the part of the son. There, there was never a lack of the fear of God operative in the son that resulted in any kind of obstruction to his prayers. You know, Peter uh, warns husbands. He says, you need to live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers will not be hindered. If, if, if we sin in various ways, it will hinder our prayer lives. Jesus never had such a hindrance. He was heard because of his reverence. And then verse 8 continues with these, this sort of exploration and meditation upon the Lord Jesus. It says, although he was a son... He learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, I think the author here is saying something like this. Although he was a son, although he was the son eternally begotten of the father, as, as we saw back in Hebrews chapter 1, uh, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So what the father is flows out into the Son. I think this is, these are the kinds of ideas that the author has in mind when he says, although he was a Son, although he was the eternally begotten second person of the Godhead, and then just be astonished by the next words. He learned. How does that happen? How does God learn? Well, in the days of his flesh. You know, here, here we're up against this reality that we're dealing with the God-man. And, and we have to recognize that on the one hand, I think we want to say, as God, he never learned anything. But as man, because he took on the form of a servant, because he became like his brothers in every way. Yes, Luke 2.52 says he, he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5 here says he learned, he learned it's, it's, it's astonishing how bold the author of Hebrews is. He's, he's confident to make these assertions. Although he was a son, he learned obedience. 
through what he suffered. I don't think this means that there was ever any wayward inclination in the heart of the Lord Jesus. I don't think it means that he ever took a misstep and had to learn how to do it the right way. Rather, I think what's being communicated is he, he had an experiential acquaintance of the challenge of obedience. He came up against moments where there was real temptation, as the author has said earlier. He was tempted as we are in every way, 2.18. He has suffered when tempted. He, he was tempted as we are in every way, yet without sin. And so he, he came up to these moments where he had to actively fight and oppose sin. And in that, he learned what obedience really is. And here, there's a contrast, isn't there, between those high priests of the Old Covenant who, because of their sin, in verse 3, are obligated to offer sacrifice for their own sins, just as they do for those of the people, and the Lord Jesus, who, though he's learning obedience through what he suffered, which enables us, enables him also to deal gently with us, yet he, he has no need to offer sacrifice for himself. And so, in verse 9, the author continues there. He says, and being made perfect. And here, I think he, he's resuming the kinds of things that he said back in chapter 2, verse 10, when he spoke of how uh, the, the Lord made the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And we were, when we were in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, uh, I noted this, this language of being made perfect. It's, it's the Greek terminology that's used to translate the ordination of the priests in, in the Hebrew in the Old Testament. The, the filling of the hand of the priest for the work of, of the priesthood, that's, that's translated as the making perfect of the priest. So it's like the Lord Jesus is anointed to, to serve as the high priest through his suffering. So I want to encourage you to respond to, to what we're seeing here, particularly in Hebrews 2, 7, and 8, with, with wonder and with awe. I want to encourage you to marvel at the humility and the love of Christ. Marvel at the humility of Christ because, because he's humbling himself and taking on the form of a servant. And then though he is God, he is offering up prayers and supplications. And he's doing it for sinners. We, I suspect everyone in the room has had this unworthy thought when, when asked to serve another person. That person doesn't deserve to have me serve them in this way. We've all had an unworthy thought like that, haven't we? No one was that more true of than the Lord Jesus. And I suspect that the temptation to think that way, those people don't deserve to have me serve them this way, was never even a temptation for him. And that's why I say marvel at the humility and the love of the Lord Jesus. Verse 9, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation 
to all who obey him. He became the source of eternal salvation. I wonder if you're here this morning and you don't identify as a follower of the Lord Jesus. You don't consciously think of yourself as somebody who belongs to Jesus. And, and I would just encourage you to fix your eyes on these words. He became the source of eternal salvation. Later in the letter, the author is going to contrast the eternal salvation that Christ has accomplished with these temporary measures that the priests accomplish. They keep having to offer those sacrifices over and over again. And then they keep having to replace the priests because the priests die. But because Jesus has this power of an indestructible life, and because of the quality, the infinite quality of his sacrifice, he became the source of eternal salvation. And I want to encourage you to respond to these words by being saved in Christ. And what does that look like? What does it look like to be saved in Christ? Look at the next phrase. To all who obey him. And you know, the Lord Jesus said to people, come, follow me. And the only people that responded to that call were those who believed he's the Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. He's the King of Israel. He's the one whom the Father has sent. He's the high priest that will take us back into the Garden of Eden. And so I want to urge you to recognize that's who Jesus is. And I want to call you to salvation in Christ. If you're here this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus, I'm calling you right now to repent of your unbelief. And I'm calling you to hear Christ calling you to be saved in him. And I, I hope and pray that you'll obey. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This is an obedience that is not a work that establishes some kind of works-based salvation. This is an obedience that flows out of a changed heart, that flows out of the fact that you, you are convinced that there's nobody else that's going to save you. Save you. And there's nobody else that's worthy of your devotion. And there's nobody else that's worthy of your whole life commitment. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Verse 10, being designated by God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So we've run through the passage uh, in sequence as it appears to us. Let, let's, let's think together for just a moment about the balancing stair steps. The first step, verse 1, every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to, to act on behalf of men in relation to God. And then in verse 10, being designated by God, a high priest. So you can see how those balance. How do we respond to this? Well, recognize that God is seeking reconciliation. God is seeking reconciliation. This is why we regularly do this. We regularly go through this neighborhood. And, and, and tr we're trying to be agents of reconciliation on behalf of God, appealing with people that they would be reconciled to God. I want to encourage you to pick up those flyers, those little three-by-five or whatever they are cards back there that are gray that have all the information about our Wednesday night services the next few weeks. Hand these out to people that need Christ. God is seeking people to be reconciled to himself. Amen. And then also... We want to respond to this by holding fast and drawing near. Look at, look at chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near. For 
14, at the end of the verse, let us hold fast our confession. Hold fast and draw near. And then if we go to the second step and the second to last step, 5, 2, and 3, and 5, 7, and 8, we can say the human priests could relate to those to whom they ministered because they were sinners and they needed sacrifices. Christ can relate because he learned obedience through suffering in the fullness of his humanity. And I want to urge you to, to think in terms of both Hebrews 4, the, the language of 14 and 15, since then we have a great high priest, for we do not have a high priest who is unable. And then think also of 10, 19 through 21. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, the Lord Jesus is taking us into the very holy of holies. Because of who he is, we have confidence. And then in the middle, 5, 4 and 5, 5 and 6, God exalted Christ as the new Adam, the new Israel, the Melchizedekian high priest. And I want to call you to recognize that he is everything that we need. He is everything that we need. Uh, this passage at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 5 5, 1 through 10, I think in the same way that we've seen that, that there are these sort of groupings of Hebrews 1 and 2 and, and then um, Hebrews 3 and 4, I think there's another grouping that, that goes Hebrews 5 through 7. Listen to the language of chapter 7, verses 23 through 28. I'm just going to read Hebrews 7, 23 through 28. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. You are a priest forever. Hebrews 5, 6. Consequently, 7, 25, he is able to save to the uttermost. Hebrews 5, 9, the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He is able to save those to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And then 726, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a great, such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. We just read about that in 5.3. Since he did this once for all when he offered of himself, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later... You are my son today, I've begotten you. You are a priest forever. That's the word of the oath he's talking about. Appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. 5.9, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. So we're, we're going to have this unit here in chapters uh, 5 through 7 that's going to be all about the Melchizedekian high priesthood of the Lord Jesus and that unit is going to be matched in chapters 8 through 10 by a big section on the new covenant that this priest administers for his people. And that, that section concludes with the passage that Denny read earlier uh, today in the, in the service. I've been listening uh, in recent days to this fascinating book by Michael Lewis called Moneyball. And in this book, Moneyball... Uh, Michael Lewis, it, I haven't seen the movie yet. Maybe some of you have seen the movie. Uh, but in this book, he, the, the author looks at the way that back from about 1999 to 2002, 
the Oakland A's had one of, if not the lowest payroll in all of Major League Baseball, and yet the teams won more games than almost any other team in all of Major League Baseball. And the author is, is asking the question, how did they pull this off? Because all the rich teams, they would just go buy the best players. And, and what happened was this general manager named Billy Bean, he figured out how to find players who could win for almost no money. It's, it's a fascinating look at Billy Bean and the Oakland A's organization of which he was the general manager. And, and as I've been thinking about how this author, Michael Lewis, really takes us into the inside of how this worked, he, he, he shows you Billy Bean's background and, and Billy Bean's own history as, as a certain kind of player who failed. Well, he made it all the way the, to the major leagues, but he, was, he did not achieve his potential. And, and through all of that background, you really come to know and understand Billy Bean. And, and I'm talking about that because this is what the author of Hebrews is doing. The author of Hebrews is trying to help you understand who Christ is and what he has accomplished. And I hope and pray that in the same way that, that hearing this story, I listened to the audiobook of, of Billy Bean helped me to understand and made me want to know more. I hope that in the same way, your understanding will deepen. You will want to know more of the Lord Jesus and you will return again and again to these pages to, to study, to read, to mark, to inwardly digest what these words say that you might know God through Christ. That you might hold fast, draw near, and go through the gates of the Garden of Eden by means of the high priest who takes us home. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that your word would do its work. We pray that it would not return void. We pray that you would sow the seed of eternal life. Lord, we pray that in the time that we've been together, we pray that life has come, that the Spirit has awakened hearts and opened eyes to see your glory in the face of Christ. And Lord, I pray that that those who have heard the call of Christ to come and follow him, I pray that they would obey him and that he would become to them the source of eternal salvation. And Lord, I pray that, that they would take immediate action, drastic action if necessary. But I pray that they would publicly profess their faith and that they would obey the Lord Jesus in baptism and that they would follow him all their days and live for him. And Lord, for the rest of us, we pray that as we, with unveiled face, behold your glory in Christ, we pray that you would be transforming us from one degree of glory to another into the same image. And we pray that you'd be doing it for your glory, by the power of the Spirit, forever. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Amen.